Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. In today's episode, I sit down with both Dr. Christopher Germer and Dr. Kristen Neff. Chris Germer is a clinical psychologist and lecturer on psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He co-developed the Mindful Self-Compassion program with Kristen Neff in 2010, and they wrote two books, The Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook and Teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. And this program has actually been taught to over 200,000 people worldwide. Kristen Neff is currently a associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. She's a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, and she is the author of the best-selling book, Self-Compassion, and her newest book is Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. So welcome to the show, Chris and Kristen. Thank you. Yes, thanks for having us. Yeah, so I'm very excited to dive in after doing the self-compassion workbook. And so I'd love to just kick it off and ask you both, in your own words, what self-compassion means and how you would define it. Well, maybe I'll start since um, I created the, a formal definition of self-compassion almost 20 years ago. Uh, so the, the easy way to think about it is just being kind to yourself like you would a good friend. Um, But in fact, there's also two other elements that need to go into self-compassion. The first is mindfulness. In other words, we need to be aware when we're struggling or having a hard time or feeling badly in order to give ourselves the compassion we need in order to treat ourselves like a friend. And also really importantly, what makes it compassion and not something like pity is remembering that, you know, mistakes, failures, struggles, this is part of the shared human condition. It's not just me. It's just recognizing the imperfection in life and in in ourselves. This is part of the human experience. And so you put these three elements together, mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness, and you've got self-compassion. Beautiful. And Chris, anything to add to that, or does that feel pretty complete? Yeah, well, I think that Kristen already alluded to it, and that is our informal definition of self-compassion, which is uh, when we suffer, treating ourselves with the same kindness and understanding as we would treat a good friend. And this is actually um, not so easy to come by, but when we consider how we treat a good friend and then apply the same Uh, kindness, the same standards to ourselves, we actually can find a way back home, back to ourselves. Yeah. I love this point because when I think you guys alluded to this in your work, the, the, when we talk to ourselves, we're so much harsher than when we talk to our friends and our family. And I think, you know, that's so interesting, like how the range between where we have like the self-talk to, is so different than the way that we communicate with others. And and so that range is, is so big and I think it just continues to widen. So I, I'm, you know, curious, like how you discovered that, like, how did you sort of come up with this idea of, of self-compassion? I mean, neither of us came up with the idea of, of self-compassion. I, you know, um, I, I first learned about it when I learned mindfulness meditation about 25 years ago. I was learning in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, who's one of the Buddhist teachers who talks a lot about self-compassion. 
which is basically the importance of turning the lens of compassion inward as well as outward. Um, but then what had happened is at that point, no one had really researched it in academia. So you might say my contribution was trying to come up with a clear definition and then a measure of self-compassion so that we can start to research it. Um, but but absolutely, it, it's uh, it's not something that's talked about much in our culture. It's getting a little better over time, but our culture is not something, it doesn't promote self-compassion, which is one of the reasons we don't do it because no one ever, we were, we were told growing up that it's good to be compassionate to others, but no one ever said it's good to be compassionate to yourself. So that's, that's what we have to learn the skill. I can perhaps echo uh, what Kristen just said insofar as I've had the opportunity to teach uh, self-compassion all over the world on almost every continent. And uh, everywhere we go, um, People say, well, because of my culture, I'm uh, not so kind to myself and I'm much kinder to others. But <laughs> that's what they say because of my Confucian culture, because of my Catholic culture, because of my Muslim culture, because of my Jewish culture. So <laughs> everybody gives kind of a cultural explanation. But I think it's more rooted in physiology. And that is when things go wrong, we just, you know, we get motivated to fight against whatever the problem is. And when the problem is internal, we fight against ourselves. We're not very nice to ourselves when things go wrong. Mm. And how is um, self-compassion different from self-esteem? Uh, well, it, it's they overlap in some ways and that they're both a sense of self-worth. But the, the, the way we get our sense of self-worth is very different between the two. So self-esteem is a judgment or an evaluation. It's kind of a rating. I like myself. I don't like myself. I'm a good person. I'm not so good a person. And typically self-esteem comes from um, social comparison, right? I need to be special and above average to have high self-esteem. Uh, or else it's contingent. It's contingent on being successful or looking the way we want to look or on other people liking us. And so you might say self-esteem is a bit of a fair weather friend, right? It's there for us when things are good, but it deserts us when things aren't going so well. So the self-worth that's associated with self-compassion is unconditional, right? It's not a judgment or an evaluation. The idea is I'm a flawed human being. And as a human being, I'm intrinsically worthy of kindness and care and concern. And for that reason, um, you don't have to be better than anyone else to have self-compassion. You just have to be flawed like everyone else. And really importantly, self-compassion, it's a stable friend, right? So especially when we fail or we feel inadequate or we get rejected in some way, self-compassion says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry you're hurting. Is there any way I can help? So that kindness and that concern and that worthiness is much more stable over time. And there's actually a lot of research that shows that the self-worth link, the self-compassion is more stable over time. Mm. Yeah. And it's also, it seems that because of social media and like the proliferation of smartphones and just being so connected and comparing ourselves to others that we're always going to lose at that game at some point. <laughs> so yeah, it's an unwinnable game. It's like a treadmill you can't get off of. And so self-compassion is getting off the treadmill and finding another way to value yourself, which is why it's so powerful. Yeah. Wow. Chris, anything to add here or? Uh, no, I, I just um, think that when people learn self-compassion, they 
uh, find a kind of a secure base within themselves. And then they're just less uh, vulnerable to praise and blame and likes and dislikes and the vicissitudes of living in this uh, social world. It's, it's a, it's a way of um, anchoring ourselves in our humanity and in our reality, our individual reality in a safe way. Mm. It's so powerful. And I think the idea of what you guys call it common humanity um, that part for me was so important in the work of self-compassion because I think so many of us operate in our own little silos. You know, we think that we have our own set of grievances, we have our own flaws that no one else has. And I think the idea that we're connected to this larger group of humanity that also goes through like the trials and tribulations of life, for me, that just felt so comforting, uh, you know, especially since I think so many of us think that we are alone in our suffering, right? Like we're alone in whatever is happening to our, our lives. Um, so I, I really love that point. I don't know if you have anything else to share on the common humanity piece or if others felt that that part was particularly uh, strong for them as well. I would say in many ways, common humanity is the wisdom aspect of self-compassion. It's the ability to see, you know, perspective yourself in relation to others, to see the bigger picture. It can also be very tricky to access, right? So some people, they think common humanity means, oh, you know, who am I to complain? There are children starving in El Salvador, right? Which isn't what common humanity is pointing to. It's really pointing to, you might say, universal human rights, the universal um, human worthiness of care and kindness and respect. And again, the universality of suffering. Now, it doesn't mean some people get confused. Some people think it means that all suffering is the same, you know, like all lives matter. That's, that's not what it's saying. It recognizes that some people suffer more than others. And yet it reaffirms that all human suffering is worthy of a compassionate response. Um, but it is a little tricky because there needs to be some wisdom and perspective in this aspect of compassion. Mm, wow. I'd also love to dive into the steps um, to connect with yourself, like through the lens of self-compassion. So we can take an example of having like tech issues. <laughs> um, you know, I felt uh, at least like whenever there are tech issues, um, when starting a podcast, there's a little bit of like anxiety that I have. And so like, how would you coach me or like walk me through the steps towards self-compassion for this particular moment? So the three components of self-compassion, as Kristen mentioned, are mindfulness, common humanity, and self-kindness. And so if you have tech issues, the first thing to do is to recognize that you're feeling distress about the tech issue. In other words, some to be able to say to yourself, ooh, this is uncomfortable, or this hurts, or this is awkward, or... Um, you know, just a name for yourself that this is difficult, but especially to do it in a way that is um, validating, sympathetic, and kind. You know, in other words, not like, there you go again, you got another tech issue. <laughs> you know, why didn't you solve that before? But yeah, tech issues, this is tough. This is a tough part of the job. And then that's mindfulness to, in other words, a kind of, um, a kind of, uh, kind, spacious awareness of what you're, we're experiencing, especially when we're suffering. And then the second part is common humanity. And one thing we all know is that 
Um, no matter how much we prepare for, you know, a podcast or um, a video or something, or when we're in front of an audience, there are always tech issues. So in other words, yeah, tech issues. I'm probably not the only person in the world who's ever experienced tech issues over and over again. Um, in other words, not to feel you know alone in that struggle and really to be reminded that it goes with the territory. It's part of this work. It's part of being human in the technological world. So that's common humanity. But then the third part is equally important and frankly, not more important, but equally important as the other two, which is uh, to have a kind of uh, tenderness with with ourselves when things go wrong, rather than to just get caught up in a threat state. Because if we get caught up in a threat state, we start to beat up on ourselves, we do isolate ourselves, and uh, we kind of, our perception contracts. So kindness is really quite the opposite. So if you would imagine, uh, Yasmin, uh, what if if you had a friend who was a podcaster and had tech issues and then called you up afterwards and said, oh, Yasmin, this is this was so terrible. Can I you know what happened? And that person explained to you, what would you say, Yasmin, to your friend? <laughs> oh, I, I would say uh, that's just par for the course. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I would, of course, be incredibly um, you know, kind and compassionate and, and empathize really with something that I think we all deal with. Um, but yeah, that's, thank you for that. That's actually very helpful for me in this moment. (laughs) So that's great. And, and then to actually the tricky part then is to that same attitude or tone or spirit, that same tenderness or softness, or basically that same kind of, Oh, I'm sorry, this happened to you. Can you say that to yourself? You know? That's that's the tricky part that can make all the difference. Shifting kind of from a threat state to a care state. Yeah. Mm. I'm I'm super fascinated by this and I want to double click on this point because I am a type of person who for a large part of my life I was actually very hard on myself. Um and uh you know, I'm curious like how you walk through this this kind of, you know, people that have high standards, or maybe that's not even the right word. There's some level of like structure um, required in their life. And how do you talk to people who have this kind of um, very high standard, you know, when they go through things like failure, is it the same process? Because I'm sort of, you know, and I love this and I've been actually testing um, or not testing, but putting into practice these steps. And I find that like, sometimes I find that I'm too nice um, or that I feel like I'm not, you know, living up to my ideals or my standards. And I'm sure that other people have had this same situation. So I'm, you know, curious if there's like anything different or is it just really like a practice that you need to ingrain in your day-to-day living um, in order to kind of make it stick? But what do you guys think about that? Yeah. So, you know, what, what you're talking about is actually the number one block to self-compassion people are under the illusion and and it's false actually that self-compassion means being soft with yourself, maybe lowering your standards, (laughs) right? That it's going to undermine your own motivation or make you lose your edge. It's actually not the case. If you're 
too nice with yourself. It means you're no longer being self-compassionate because what that means by too nice means you're actually harming yourself in some way because you're letting yourself slide perhaps, or you aren't making yourself happy or fulfilled by reaching your goals. So for instance, um, we, we work with high level athletes who have very high standards. The second best is not good enough for them. Right? They need to be very at the very top. Self-compassion can help you reach those very high standards by saying, this is important to me. This is what I want. These are my goals. You know, I'm going to do the work it takes. I'm going to work hard to, to reach my goals. But the difference between self-compassionate motivation and self-critical motivation is what do you do when you fall a little bit short of your goals, right? Mistakes are part of the process. So if you're self-critical and you shame yourself, instead of learning from your mistakes, you're just too full of self-criticism and blame and you get depressed and you develop performance anxiety and maybe you start procrastinating. It actually works against motivation. If you're self-compassionate, what you do is you you see how can I learn from this mistake? You know, it doesn't say anything about me as a person. Just because I fail doesn't mean that I'm a failure. Just because I fell short of my standards doesn't mean that there's something wrong with me. It just means, okay, so I need to try again. And that ability to try again and to learn from one's mistakes and to try harder, not out of a sense of inadequacy, but through encouragement and support, just like a really good coach would do, that's actually more motivating in the long run. And, and once again, there's a lot of research to support this. Self-compassion is a more effective motivator than self-criticism. And so I also like to talk about fierce and, and tender self-compassion. Sometimes the most self-compassionate thing to do is give yourself a little compassionate kick in the butt. Hey, you can do it. I believe in you. Let's try a little bit harder. Again, not because you're not okay as you are, but because you care. That's the big difference. I want to also talk about self-compassion and how it's played out in the last uh, couple of years since the pandemic started, how you have used uh, either personally or maybe anecdotally um, this self-compassion practice in the last year. I think so many people have gone through um, just a tremendous amount of change and suffering. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm just curious if you have stories to share about how people have used self-compassion um, to sort of move through this time that we're in. Well, so this time has been uh, stressful. It's been associated with a lot of change. For a lot of people, they've been dealing with uh, health issues. They've been of themselves or others. They've been dealing with financial issues. Um it's just been really stressful, un unusually stressful for a large segment of the human population. So uh, if nothing else, self-compassion is a powerful resource for emotional resilience, which means it allows us to bounce back from adversity. Um, there are now almost 4,000 studies on uh, self-compassion in the academic literature. And, and if if we were to distill them down to one word, uh, it would be resilience. Um, so uh, what exactly is going on when a person becomes more resilient? And one of the, there, there are many ways to look at this, but um, one of the ways to look at it is that uh, we don't respond with uh, such an intense uh, threat response. Another thing that um, is really required of us as we go through 
the uh, pandemic is that we um, have to confront ourselves a little more. You know, many people are going through what's considered the pandemic reevaluation. In other words, who am I? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? And so we, we haven't really had all the distractions that we've um, been absorbed in prior to the pandemic, a lot of people. And as a result, they really are starting to ask themselves fundamental questions about um, worthiness, which also bumps us, bumps us up against the issue of shame. And so I think one of the things that self-compassion has been doing for people as they go through this um, long extended period of self-evaluation is it allows them to uh, be with themselves and evaluate themselves in a more encouraging, less shame-based way. And the last thing I'll say, and I'm sure Kristen has a lot more to say about this, is that the interest in self-compassion has just has been burgeoning over the last two years. There is so much interest and a ton of research showing that self-compassion is uh, really helpful for uh, pandemic stress. So it's really been, you, you could say, the perfect opportunity to practice self-compassion. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and Kristen, if you wanted to add to that, um, I'm sure you might have some stories to share as well, but I love, I think that the examination of life is something I've also seen um, anecdotally in my circle. And I think so many people are asking the question, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? And let me re-examine my life and my thoughts. And I think so many of us have been on this hamster wheel that hasn't allowed us to even be reflective and ask us, ask these types of questions. So I can, you know, also share that in the world of um, Silicon Valley and technology, which I'm also a part of, there's been a massive resignation sweep where a lot of people are just, people are just quitting left and right and just saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to live a very different life and I don't want to be part of this, um, this reality. So um, yeah. So Kristen, if you, if you have something to add, I'm, I'm sure that you have also stories that you can share with us. Yeah. Well, one interesting study found that people who had more self-compassion were more able to see the silver linings of the pandemic. For instance, spending more time with one's family against getting off that hamster wheel for a while. And that is one thing that self-compassion gives you. Um, but also, I think one of the reasons so many people turn to self-compassion during the pandemic is because we've all been like physically isolated from each other. Right. We didn't have the same ability to hang out with friends or go out to dinner or, you know, get some of the support from others that we might have normally done. And so many people had to start really relying on themselves to help themselves through this difficult time. And so because this, because self-compassion doesn't, re, you know, it, it's inward, right? It's 24 seven. You don't you don't need a therapist. You don't need anyone else to be there in the room with you. I think a lot of people found that uh, it was a, a savior, a real savior during the pandemic, the ability to be kind to oneself, to be understanding, to ask, what do I need right now? What do I need to get through this? Um, to be comfortable, to be healthy. Uh, and I think that's partly why so many people turned to self-compassion, just because they, they didn't have their normal resources, but they did have themselves. And the thing is, we are with ourselves 24-7 in a way that no one else is. 
I love that so much. And uh, Kristen, I remember um, listening to a story that you shared about uh, self-compassion that you used in, on yourself in a scenario with, um, I think it was your son who was on an airplane. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. So I talk a lot about my son and how self-compassion is help with my son, whether it's on an airplane or I'll, I'll give you a more recent a, a story um, which happened during the pandemic. Cause I thought, okay, this is a great time for him to learn how to drive. <laughs> right. And I think any parent can relate um, to what happens when you're trying to teach a child to drive and you're just terrified, right? Um, how, how do you deal with that? So, so what I found with my son, and by the way, my son is autistic is um we're very tuned into each other. I mean, so he is very aware of my emotional state and I'm very aware of his emotional state. And in fact, all human beings are like this. We have specialized mirror neurons, whose whole job it is to feel the emotions of others. And um, what I would find is if I was d- depressed or if I was really frustrated or I got irritated at him or, or really frightened when he tried to make a left turn across a, a busy highway, uh, he he would get he would get distressed, right? So so um, for instance, if he was having a, a really bad day and I was having a bad day because of it, he would get worse. But then when I could give myself compassion for my empathic distress, right, for the fact that I was getting distressed by his distress, or or I was getting distressed because of the stress of learning to drive, the more compassion I gave myself the more compassion he received through his own mirror neurons. So in other words, we'd we'd feed off each other. And it's not just parents and children that do this. All people feed off each other. And it's interesting. Some people think that self-compassion is selfish. It's the exact opposite. Because what do you bring in the world that everyone else interacts with? You bring to the world an angry, self-critical, depressed person full of shame. And then their mirror neurons pick up on that. Or do you bring into the world a loving, kind, peaceful, compassionate person that other people can interact with? And so I found with my son, really the best way to help him is to be self-compassionate. I love that so much. Um, And I mean, it's so true that even when you walk into a room, you can sort of, at least people who are, you know, more empathetic, we can sense, you know, what's happening for others. And we pick up on these these signals. Um, and so I love, I love that even the people closest to us are probably interpreting our level of self-compassion when we, when we go through moments of conflict or, or frustration. So I I really appreciate that point. Yeah. You can almost help them regulate their emotions by regulating your own emotions because our emotions impact each other. Mm, That's powerful. So I want to talk a little bit about the masculine and kind of feminine aspects of compassion. And in your book, you call it the yin and yang of self-compassion. I would love for you guys to to talk about that. I think that these topics have just been really, I think, more popular in the last year, this where we're at, like with polarization and kind of moving to more of a neutrality. But I just thought like the way that you created the framework with yin and yang was so interesting. So I'd love to just share with our audience. Compassion is generally... um, misunderstood or at least understood in a very limited way. And that is that it's always about nurturing. It's always about tenderness. It's always about uh, kind of being with uh, somebody in a 
in a loving way. And But we know that that's not the case. In other words, is it any less compassionate for a firefighter to run into a building to save somebody who's in danger? Uh, so there's another side of self-compassion, which Kristen has really been beautiful of compassion and self-compassion, which Kristen has really been beautifully articulating along with a lot of practical ways of uh, strengthening uh, that other side. So Kristen calls it fierce compassion and it's the title of a wonderful book. And I would love to hear a few minute synopsis of that book, Kristen. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I mentioned it briefly before, but there's, there's, the tender side of self-compassion, which is our ability to be with ourselves and our pain. But there's also the fierce action-oriented side of self-compassion, which is like Chris said, when a firefighter runs into a building or when we draw boundaries or when we protect ourselves or when we motivate a change. So compassion is the balance between um, acceptance and taking action in a healthy way. Uh, and fortunately, if you look at gender role socialization, um, traditional male gender roles are all about action, achieving, being competent, you know, being fighters. But men, people are socialized as men get called names that they're too tender or soft or nurturing, right? And that harms men because the ability to uh, be with ourselves and our negative emotions helps us heal. Uh, women, on the other hand, were raised to be tender and nurturing uh, the others, not ourselves. And so that norm of self-sacrifice means that women actually have a little less self-compassion than men because we don't feel entitled to get our needs met. Uh, and at the same time, we aren't allowed to be fierce. We aren't allowed to get angry or, or people actually, believe it or not, they don't like really competent women because they think a competent action-oriented woman isn't soft and nurturing and they like soft and nurturing women. So the, the yin and yang of self-compassion or fierce and tender self-compassion, they've been gendered in a way that harms everyone because we know that health and well-being comes from balancing these two different energies. So self-compassion in many ways, it's not only a radical act, it's kind of a political act. It's saying, I'm not going to just conform to your gender expectations of me. I'm going to be whole and complete. I'm going to develop all sides of myself because I care and I want to be happy. Mm, wow. Yeah. I, I so appreciate that. I think, um, you know, especially in the world of work, um, that sort of polarity, I think is difficult for a lot of um, women to navigate, um, how to be nurturing, but also maintain the kind of, um, you know, composure of being fierce and present and, um, what's the word like senior <laughs> commanding. Yes. Um, authoritative, authoritative, authoritative. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's so, it's so interesting. I think a lot of folks that I know are having a difficult time navigating that. And as a follow-up question, I'd, I'd actually love to ask both of you, like what, method, if any, is different for self-compassion at work, especially since, um, you know, people who are maybe at more senior levels, uh, have difficult times maintaining that balance. Um, have you, do you have any stories to share maybe that could be helpful for our audience? And I think, you know, most people right now are remote working. Um, so that is probably another whole set of issues. Um, but yeah. We're, we're currently um, piloting the eight-week mindful self-compassion training program in uh, workplaces, in particular um, tech company in Germany right now. And the uh, main learning 
is that the um, the resource of self-compassion, particularly as it's articulated in Kristen's model of mindfulness, common humanity, and and uh, kindness, is um, equally applicable in the workplace as in the home. So it's really, you might say, a resource that um, crosses uh, boundaries, you know. Um, but uh, I, I don't actually have personally have a work story that I can share, um, except to say in my own life that uh, I'm currently uh, 69 years old. You know, I'm contemplating retirement and also contemplating finding uh, a proper uh, work home life balance. And uh, self-compassion has been really helpful to me in that regard. Because um, as many people know, when they are about to go into uh, retirement, what, they begin to think, well, if I'm not doing what I've always been doing, who am I? You know, am I as valuable a person, as you know, worthwhile a person, as loved a person and so forth? And, and for me, vis-a-vis uh, -vis my work, I find that being compassionate actually uh, validates the part of me, the wise part of me that understands where I am in my, you know, life and what I really value in terms of, you know, free time, in terms of work, in terms of service, in terms of um, uh, fun, and and that that whole process of a deep inner assessment is so much easier from the point, from the perspective of self-compassion rather than uh, just um, uh, evaluating myself based on uh, the rewards that come from work. So that's a personal example. Mm. Yeah, I think it's one that a lot of people are going through that um, kind of transition in life and how to make sense of identity. So I love that you're using that for your own uh, personal journey. And it's so interesting because I spend a lot of time in the the corporate world, but I also have a, a lot of other kind of different careers, uh, this one as well. And it's so, it's so interesting to me how little education is shared um, in the space of self-compassion, um, emotional regulation and self-awareness in the world of work and how disconnected it feels, um, you know, even from an embodiment perspective, just how disconnected we are from our bodies. Um, so I'm, I'm loving that you guys have piloted this, this program uh, of self-compassion at work because I think it's very much needed. Uh, and Kristen, I'm not sure if you had anything else to share on, on this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, certainly, well, self-compassion is my career as well as helping me, you know, on, on my career path, but, you know, I've had to be, well, I was a real pioneer, I think, in bringing this concept into academia and not everyone was so accepting of it at first. A lot of people raised some eyebrows and I know without a doubt that without my self-compassion practice, especially some of this real fierce self-compassion, that I wouldn't have, first of all, been brave enough to try something new at the risk of other people rejecting it. Um, also really motivating me. I mean, that's the thing when people say self-compassion undermines your motivation. That's not what I found. I found that it's been incredibly motivating because, you know, I care. I know this does good in the world. It's really um, helped energize me doing something meaningful. 
but probably more than anything else, the gift that self-compassion has given me in my career is authenticity, right? That I've been able to be my authentic self, not only in terms of choosing what I want to study, even if other people aren't studying it. Also, when I write books about self-compassion or I teach self-compassion, I've been pretty self-revealing in a way that a lot of people would be uncomfortable with because I knew that, you know, it's okay. I could, I can air my dirty laundry because I'm not, I don't have to pretend to be a perfect human being. I'm a flawed human being like everyone else. And the ability to be authentic and to be secure in who I am, even though I'm a mess and always will be a mess is really, I think, underpin my ability to, to achieve everything I've achieved. So um, yeah, self-compassion is really transformed my career without a doubt. And if I can extrapolate on that just a little bit, um, in Kristen's example, um, leadership is often associated with authenticity. It's associated with kindness. And um, it's also associated with grit. And self-compassion is associated with all those things. So one thing we're finding is that the qualities of self-compassion are closely um, allied with um, beneficial qualities for leadership at the workplace. Wow, that's very fascinating. I am happy to hear that that's like what you guys have found. um, Yeah, I'm sure that everyone's got their own mix of stories when it comes to their perspective of what's happening at work. Um, But it almost feels like we're becoming more and more like machines. I know that there's been a lot of surge for compassion and emotional regulation and you know, this, these kind of, I, I don't even want to call them softer skills because they're not, I think they're just like a necessary part of being human and also collaborating with others and having creativity, um, and even being productive. I think all of that actually works better with self-compassion, but I've sort of found, um, in my own experience that, um, there's a desire for, for folks to be, to just remove their emotional world completely and almost operate like a machine. Um, you know, the head without the body. (laughs) So that, you know, just something to kind of share. I I don't, I know that that's not your um, focus on work, but it's been my observation. I think, I think I'm hoping that in the next decade that we're going to prioritize these, the human, uh, you know, the human rather than the the brain and the machine uh, above all else. So, um, I wanted to talk about something that you wrote about in your book. You you talk about how to be there for others without losing ourselves and in particular, how we can maintain a connection with others without taking their pain. I think a lot of people shy away from, from, um, you know, sort of going deep into like the dark nights of the soul with others or going down kind of a, a difficult role because we often feel like we get sucked in. Um, so I'm I'm really curious what you guys have to say about that. Like, how do we help others without losing ourselves in the process? Um, yeah, so uh, there's a difference between empathy and compassion. Empathy is feeling the world of another person as our own. And when somebody is suffering and we feel their world as our own, we suffer for real. And there's just a certain amount of suffering that anybody could can take on. So we can actually get pretty worn out, pretty fatigued through the power of empathy. However, uh, compassion is uh, empathy plus goodwill. It's empathy plus 
warmth. It's empathy plus love. There, actually, compassion is a positive emotion. You know, empathy is kind of neutral. It depends on whatever a person is experience, another person is experiencing, and that that's what we feel. But compassion is a positive emotion. It's energizing. It's it's um, it, it's um, uplifting. And so, um, when people talk about compassion fatigue, they're really talking about empathy fatigue. And that, ironically, the antidote to compassion fatigue. Most people think, "Oh, I have compassion fatigue. I should have less compassion." But ironically, um, when we have so-called compassion fatigue, what we really need is more compassion for ourselves. And um, and so that that, in some respects, is uh, I think the magic formula for co compassion fatigue because. When we've been caring for somebody uh, in a way that it's re really wearing us down, as many parents, for example, have been experiencing with their, you know, having their children at home and homeschooling and all this stuff for the last year and a half, um, to be able to in that when we start getting stressed and angry and frustrated and we wished it weren't so in that moment to be able to turn around and offer ourselves a self-compassion break. In other words, to be able to say, oh, this is so hard and I'm not the only parent in the world who's feeling like this. And then to take good care of oneself in some way. In other words, to shift from a threat state to a care state changes, changes our experience of the whole situation and ironically, actually increases our capacity for compassion for others. And the research is very clear. As we grow in compassion for ourselves, we actually grow in compassion for others. So in other words, um, the antidote to compassion fatigue is really uh, self-compassion. You have something to add to that maybe, Kristen? Well, just that um, another big thing that related thing to the what they call compassion fatigue um, is burnout, right? Which can come not only from actually caring for other people, but just being so overwhelmed by the stress of our lives. Um, burnout is an absolute pandemic, its own pandemic, right? Right now. And there's a lot of research showing that self-compassion helps reduce burnout. So again, if we give and we give to others, our cup will run dry eventually. But when we can resource ourselves, we can also give to ourselves. When we can ask ourselves, well, what do I need right now? Then it helps us not be depleted by caring for others. And that's how we care for others without losing ourselves. Mm, such important points. Um, thank you so much. And I, yeah, I mean, I think also there's so many people, families who are beyond burnt out. So I, I you know, I think having more compassion for self and just overdosing essentially on compassion is, is I think what we all need to be thinking and doing and practicing. So thank you so much. I, unfortunately we are um, running out of time, but I have just one more question uh, before we wrap up. Uh, Kristen and Chris, I'd love to know what sort of things have surprised you the most on this journey? Um <laughs> Well, one of the things that I must say has surprised me is that it's actually easier than I thought it would be for people to learn how to be self-compassionate. You know, when I was first doing research, and of course, 
from my own observation, but also empirically, we know that people are so much more compassionate to others than themselves. I thought it'd be pretty difficult to teach people how to be kinder to themselves. And what we're finding is actually, um, it's not as hard as I thought it would be. It's, it's actually not rocket science. It's because we already know the skill. In other words, all we're really doing is repurposing the skill we've already developed. We know how to use the tone of voice, you know, to be supportive. We know what to say that's encouraging, that's helpful to other people. And so all we really have to do is give ourselves permission to turn it inward. Um, and that's been a real happy surprise because uh, I thought it would be much more difficult than it turns out to be. That's not saying that it's easy either. I don't want to downplay it, but it's easier than you might think which is the good news. Mm, that's inspiring and great uh, for folks who uh, want to get started on this practice. So thank you. And Chris? Um, yeah, I think that um, <laughs> I agree with Kristen. It's easier than we think. The thing that actually has amazed me the most is how radically transformative it is. In other words, Kristen and I often like look at each other and scratch our heads and say, you know, this really works. <laughs> People are telling us from all over the world, this works. Um, so, th so that's wonderful. But the other thing is that we can learn self-compassion in so many ways. You know, if you get a dog as a pet, it's going to increase self-compassion. If you forest bathe, you know, walk in the woods, it's going to increase self-compassion. If you do yoga, it's going to increase self-compassion. There's so many, if you're compassionate toward others, it increases self-compassion. There's so many ways, you know, as Kristen said, you know, it's easy to learn self-compassion. There's so many ways and each person really needs to find their own way. But the thing that I've noticed the most is more than anything, People need to give themselves permission to be self-compassionate. And when they start to give themselves permission, everything starts to fall in place. And if ever anybody says, oh, I can't give myself permission because, you know, it's just, oh, I, I don't know, it, it just doesn't feel right. Just look at the research. There's a ton of research. And the second thing to think about is actually self-compassion is a very humble enterprise. All we're doing is including ourselves in the circle of compassion, in the circle of our compassion, not excluding ourselves any longer, just being merciful and giving ourselves the same kindness and understanding as we so naturally give to other people. Mm, wow. So powerful. Thank you so much for these incredible uh, takeaways. And, and also, I think, where can people find you for folks who want to maybe get involved in, in your program on mindful self-compassion um, and obviously your books? Uh, do you guys have specific websites that people can navigate to? Yeah. Um, so probably the, the place that Maybe the place to start is the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion website. That's the nonprofit that Chris and I founded with the goal of actually teaching people how to be more self-compassionate. Um, so if you type in centerformsc.org, um, you can find it. You can take online training. There's a ton of guided meditations and exercises led by both Chris and myself. Um, so that's one place. You can also, if you just Google self-compassion, you'll find my website, selfcompassion.org, and you can uh, take a test to find out how self-compassionate you are, a ton of research. Um, and Chris's website is, Chris, do you want to say your website URL? Yeah, it's chrisgermer.com. Mm -hmm. 
And we have we have a lot of free resources. We believe in giving away as much as possible. So you can start there and then decide if you want to buy a book or take a training. Wonderful. And for for people all over the world, you should know that we have 3,000 trained MSc teachers actually in almost every country in the world. So if you're interested in, you know, more personalized training, if you go to the Center for MSc website and look up your country, you might find somebody in your neighborhood who could uh, guide you in this practice. Yes. And actually, that's how I was introduced to your work. I had a very good friend take your, uh, I think it was a shortened course um, at Esalen many years ago. And I was actually at Esalen at the same time doing some a different course uh, and had just heard so many great things. So um, there's, yeah, plenty of, of folks who can, who administer this type of program. Um, and you can find that all on their website. So I'll leave that in the show notes for people to navigate to. Wonderful. Well, Chris and Kristen, thank you so much for your time. I feel inspired and reflective after this conversation. And I think there's a lot of things to think about for folks who are listening as well. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for this wonderful interview. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful. For our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about how to cultivate mindful self-compassion and you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.